0: Well, good morning. morning. It's great to be here with you all today. For those of you that are new or may not know me, my name is James, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, you don't know that we've been going through the book of Matthew, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today we're coming up on one of the more difficult passages about the crucifixion. But did you know the story of that song we just finished with It is well. Do you know the story behind that song? So the guy that wrote it, his name was Horatio Spafford, lived in Chicago, a wealthy lawyer, owned a lot of real estate. It's where a lot of his wealth was invested. And he had a, a son who died young. I believe it was of scarlet fever that his son passed away. Not too long after that, the Great Chicago Fire burned down the city, and he lost pretty much all of his wealth. He sent his wife and his daughters on a ship to England to get away. He said, let me tie up some of my affairs here, and then I'll get on the next ship and I'll come join you in England. And a few weeks later, he receives a telegram from his wife saying, the ship sank, I alone am saved. And so he finished his stuff, got on the next ship to go to England. And he told the captain, when we get to the place where my my daughters went down, let me know. So the captain came and got him, said, sir, we're at the place. That's where he wrote that song. It is well. How can you, in the midst of such tragedy and grief, write such powerful words that it is well with my soul? And the reason is because of what we are going to talk about today, the death of Jesus on the cross that provides salvation, that provides hope of eternity, that gave Horatio Spafford the confidence and the knowledge that he would see his daughters again. The power of the cross gives us that hope, that strength, that encouragement. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, Please turn to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be going through a number of verses today, looking at the death of Jesus on the cross. One of the things we're going to notice as we go through this is that Matthew's focus is a little bit different. Matthew doesn't focus a whole lot on Jesus, what Jesus says on the cross, what happens to Jesus. His focus is really on the other characters in the story, the way they respond, the way they treat Jesus. We're going to see how people respond to Jesus. So we're in Matthew chapter 27. Let's look at the first few verses starting in verse 32. Now, if you remember, before we get into that, if you remember last week, the last couple weeks, what Pastor Kevin has gone through with us is Jesus had three religious trials, illegal, in the middle of the night. Then he had three secular trials where he went before Pilate. Pilate finally realized they had basically blackmailed him that he had to have Jesus crucified. He washed his hands, said, fine, you take him, you, crucified. I am, you crucify him, I am innocent of this. And we left it in verse 31 that they led Jesus away to crucify him. Now let's pick up in verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. So the way the Romans would do things is if you were condemned to be crucified, you would have to carry the crossbar out to the crucifixion side yourself. When you got out there, the vertical pole would still be there. You would carry out the cross section outside of the city to be crucified because the Romans would do this publicly, all right? They would crucify you publicly. Unlike us, when we execute people in our country, we do it secretly and in private. We do it with as little pain as possible. They wanted to make a spectacle of this painful, long-lasting public so that anyone that saw it would understand this is what happens when you disobey Rome. It was a deterrent for other people to see I could be the person up there on that cross if I go against Rome. Rome. And so they would do this very publicly. They would have the person carry the cross beam out to the cross. But if you remember, what we heard about Jesus is that the Romans would beat you until you're almost dead. They would pause, revive you, bring you back, and then whip you again. And they would do this over and over. So at this point, Jesus is super weak. He is unable to carry the big, thick beam that would weigh a lot. He is unable to carry it And so they come out, and they find this guy named Simon. He's from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya. And they say, Simon, you carry the cross for Jesus because Jesus is unable to do it. They lead him outside to Golgotha. This would have been right outside the main city gates. Matthew tells us the word Golgotha means the place of the skull, so probably a rock formation that looked like a skull, a fitting place for executions. And it says they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. Maybe the one little thing of compassion the Romans might do. Because the wine and the gall or the, the myrrh mixed together was something of a narcotic. It would ease some of the pain. It would make it a little bit easier for you. But at the same time, the gall made it very bitter. So it was one of those, here's you a narcotic to take away the pain if you can keep it down, if you can take the bitter, nasty taste and get it down, it'll help you. So a bit of a mockery, a bit of cruelty, but possibly a little bit of compassion. But notice what Jesus does with it. It says after tasting it, he refused to drink it. All right. It's not that he couldn't drink it because it was too bitter. He refuses. He chooses, I am not going to drink this when he sees and understands what the beverage is. And the, this is important that Matthew records that for us because what we're going to see today is seven things that Jesus says while on the cross. And so it's clear from Matthew this is not drunk Jesus on the cross, just mumbling from a stupor. This is not high Jesus on the cross, drugged up, saying things he doesn't understand. Jesus is sober and in full control of everything he does and says on the cross. So it's very clear, and it's very important that we understand from Matthew, Jesus refused the drink that others going on the cross might take. Jesus is in full control of his faculties the entire time. Look what they do with Jesus in verse 35. When they had crucified him, basically all Matthew says about it. Remember, he skips over a lot of Jesus. He focuses on the others. When they had crucified him, They divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Mark tells us this is nine o'clock in the morning. All right. So 9 a.m. Jesus makes it out to Golgotha. They nail him to the cross. And what they would do is you would have the cross beam. They would lay you down, stretch your arms out on it, and they'd drive a nail probably right through here, through the two bones in the middle so that you hang like that. And then they would take your your knees and they would bend your legs up like this, put one foot on top of the other, and then put another nail through your feet into the cross. And so you would hang like this. No, it's not the Karate Kid. You would hang like this. And doing that puts pressure on your chest to where you can't breathe. The only way to breathe is to push up with your legs, get some breaths of air, and then you go back down. And you're up there, probably naked, in the hot sun, the cold. You're dehydrated. You're bleeding from the whippings, from the nails. Your body's weak. After a while, your legs start to give out and you can't keep pushing up. So finally your legs give out, you hang and you suffocate because you can't breathe. Some people have been known to make it for two, even three days on the cross, a long, painful ordeal. That's what they do to Jesus. They nail him on the cross Then the soldiers, this is just their job, they sit down and start divvying up Jesus' possessions, his clothes. Here, you get the sandals, you get the sash. His inner garment was woven from one complete piece. They took that. They didn't want to tear it, so they cast lots. They played a game to see who would win it, not knowing that they are fulfilling Psalm 22:18 18, about people casting lots for Jesus' clothes. Then they sit down to guard him. Because you see, even though when people were nailed up there, they could still survive. If someone were to come out, take someone off the cross, they could nurse them, heal their wounds, help them to recover and to live. And so the guards' job after crucifying them is they would sit down, wait, and watch until the people died. And so they sit down to do that. But it's interesting because we're going to see a lot of times through here that I am nowhere like Jesus. Because you would think Jesus would be angry and yelling. But what does Jesus do in the midst of this? His first saying on the cross comes from Luke 23. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive these Roman soldiers. They don't know what they're doing. They're just getting paid to do their job. The captain told them, you're on cross duty today. Go out and do it They don't realize that Jesus is their savior. They don't realize that Jesus made them, that Jesus loves them, that he is going on that cross for them. They don't know that yet. So Jesus, rather than anger, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. The other thing the Romans would do Remember, they want this to be a deterrent. They put this out in public because they would put over your head a sign where they would write out your crime, what you're being crucified for. This so that anybody that's walking by can see it. Oh, man, if I do that, I'm going to end up on the cross. I better not do that crime. And so for Jesus, they put above his head, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And it's in three languages, Latin, which is what the Romans would speak, Greek, which was another kind of the big common language of the day what the New Testament is written in. And then Aramaic was what the Jews spoke with each other. So it's written in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Pilate does this as a mockery of Jesus and the Jews. Remember, he did not like the Jews. He hated them. And so he puts them up there to say, this is what Rome can do to your kings. You have a king, we crucify him. Your king is weak and helpless. It's a mockery by Pilate. But it's also a chance for him to poke the eye of the religious leaders. So remember, they essentially blackmailed him, twisted his arms to to where Pilate felt like he had to crucify Jesus, or he would get in trouble with Rome. He was between a rock and a hard place, as we learned last week. And the religious leaders now come to Pilate, and they say, hey, 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 we don't like that sign. We want you to rewrite it, not to say, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, but that he claimed he was king of the Jews. They don't like that Pilate called Jesus their king. They wanted it to be clear that Jesus only claimed to be the king. But Pilate tells them, I have written what I have written. Not changing it, that's what goes up there. And little does Pilate know that it's the truth. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. We saw that Jesus is crucified between two rebels. Your Bible might call them robbers. Really, they were the insurrectionists, the crime that Jesus was falsely accused of, trying to overthrow Rome. This was the crime that these guys had actually done, trying to overthrow Rome. Jesus is crucified between them, fulfilling Isaiah 53, 11, that he was numbered with the transgressors. So Jesus is on the cross, and his poor treatment continues. Look in verse 39. "'Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, "'You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God.' In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. "'He saved others,' they said. "'But he can't save himself. "'He's the King of Israel!' Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And Luke tells us the soldiers mocked him as well. So Jesus is insulted by those who pass by. Remember, he is right outside the city gates. This is the time of the Passover. There are hundreds of thousands of people In Jerusalem coming in and out all day. So there are thousands of people walking by Jesus while he's on the cross, insulting him, mocking him, saying, hey, we remember you. Weren't you that teacher that said you're going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days? You can't even get off the cross. How are you going to rebuild the temple? You saved others. You could heal them. You could bring Lazarus back from the dead, but you can't even save yourself. What kind of prophet, what kind of teacher are you that you can't even save yourself from death? The religious leaders, notice Matthew names all of them, chief priests, teachers of the law, the elders, all of them mock Jesus as well. They are happy and excited. Loser, gotcha, we won. And so they mock Jesus saying he claims to be the king of Israel. They say if he comes down from the cross, we'll believe him. Jesus, you said you're the king. You said you're the Messiah. Come down off the cross. We'll believe you. We'll follow you. We'll throw our power behind you. We'll throw our influence behind you. We will believe in you if you just come down from the cross. Then they say, Jesus, if you're truly the son of God, God will rescue you. Because he cares for you. If he doesn't rescue you, you must not be the son of God. And this is interesting, how sometimes Jesus does stuff upside down, backwards, not what we would expect. Because if you remember way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is baptized. The Bible tells us as soon as he comes up from the water, the Holy Spirit comes down God says, this is my beloved son. What happens after that? It says, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And the temptations that Jesus faces in the wilderness are oddly similar to what he faces now with these mockery and insults. What did the people say while Jesus is on the cross? Save yourself. What did Satan tell Jesus after Jesus had not eaten for 40 days and was famished and starving? Turn these stones into bread. Save yourself, Jesus. Satan told Jesus, bow down and worship me. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, you want the world? You want the kingdoms? I'll give it to you. What do the religious leaders now say? Come down and we will believe in you. We will make you our king. We'll support you. Here's the kingdom, Jesus, if you just come down. Now, of course, we know they're lying because Jesus does come down. He's buried. He rises again. And the religious leaders create a conspiracy to try to throw people off. But they tell him, come down and we'll believe in you. Here's the kingdom. Satan told Jesus he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple, said, jump off, Jesus. If you're the son of God, God says he'll protect you. What do the people say now? If you're son of the Son of God, God will save you. You must not be the Son of God. So the same mockery now coming from the religious leaders, the same thing thrown at Jesus by Satan. Quite the opposite of what you would expect. Those who thought they were closest to God are actually far, far away. So the people mock him. But even in the middle of this mockery, in the middle of this difficulty, we see the first glimmer of light, which we're going to see at the end. Because it's not in Matthew, but Luke tells us that one of these insurrectionists recognizes who Jesus is. He tells the other one, stop insulting Jesus. We deserve to be up here. We committed our crimes. Jesus is innocent. And he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in the second thing Jesus says on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He tells this criminal, you will be with me in paradise because this criminal turned to Jesus in faith. Jesus was insulted, mocked, attacked. But if you notice, he doesn't respond. Peter the Apostle talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> he says, how is it if you, to your credit, if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? So if you do wrong, you deserve. If you're one of those criminals up there that you did bad, you deserve the punishment you get. He said, but if you suffer for doing good... And you endure it. This is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So he says, look at the example of Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. There is ever an innocent person on the world. It was Jesus. But he was still mocked. He was still insulted. He was still attacked. And how did he respond? When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is one of the hardest lessons for us as Christians. Because our instinct is to be like Peter. Peter was willing to fight for Jesus, right? He was willing to kill for Jesus. He was willing to pick up the sword and go swinging and chop off Malchus's ear to fight and kill for Jesus. But when it came down to people saying, you are with Jesus, and Peter realizes he might die for Jesus, he's unwilling to do that. He's willing to fight for Jesus, not so willing to die for Jesus. And for us, our temptation when we're mocked, when we're attacked, is to get them, right? Get my revenge, show them keyboard warrior, right? Take that. That'll show him. But it tells us that Jesus, when insulted, when mocked, didn't retaliate. He stood there quietly on the cross. Why? Because he knew him who judges justly. God would make it right in the end. And so Jesus could stand there, quietly, in the middle of all that. Well, at some point along here, we find out that Jesus makes his third saying from the cross. And again, this is how I know I'm not Jesus. Because he sees his mother there, Mary. He sees the apostle John there. And he looks at Mary and he says, woman, here's your son. He looks at John and says, here is your mother, asking John to take care of his mom. And he says, the Bible says from that point on, John took Mary into his house to care for her. Now, the Bible tells us, list the names of four of Jesus's brothers. If I'm up there on the cross, I'm going to be like, can you guys not do anything? (laughs) I'm a little busy right now trying to save the world and you guys can't even take care of mom. That would be me. But no, Jesus, in his normal Jesus manner, his love and compassion fulfills his duty as the eldest to take care of his mother, says, John, I want you to take my mom. Showing his love. Now it starts to get crazy. Verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, meaning my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. So, noon. Jesus has been on the cross now for three hours. Went up there at nine. He's been on the cross now for three hours. From noon to three, pitch black darkness over the entire land. This cannot be a, um, an eclipse because eclipses only lasts for a few minutes. This lasts for three whole hours. So some kind of miracle, God does something crazy, darkness over the whole land for three hours. Matthew, fast forward through those three hours to the end where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fulfilling Psalm 22, verse one. Why have you forsaken me? This is the only time he calls him my God. Usually he calls him father. Father. But now with sin on his shoulders, as God cannot look at his son because of my sin, because of your sin, Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? He knows the answer. He's not ignorant, but he's crying out in agony and pain. He's gone through physical pain He's gone through emotional and social pain as people mock him, as his disciples flee. Now he's in spiritual agony and pain. And Matthew gives us the Aramaic there, the Eli-Eli, because some people hear that and they think Eli, he's calling for Elijah. Because you see, the next to last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verse 5, says that the prophet Elijah will come before the great and final day of the Lord. And so there was this belief that when Messiah came, that Elijah would come to help. And so they're saying, oh, look at Jesus. He says he's the Messiah. He must be calling on Elijah. They think Jesus is this crazy guy up there who thinks he's the Messiah, calling out for Elijah, thinking Elijah's going to come. And so they'll say, let's sit back and watch to see what happens. Basically mocking Jesus because they don't believe that Elijah's going to come to save him. Well, in the middle of this, right after he says that, apparently, he says his fifth saying from the cross, he says, I thirst, or I am thirsty. And John tells us he does this in order to fulfill prophecy because psalm twenty-two fifteen 15 talks about a dry mouth and his tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth and so jesus says i'm thirsty and then psalm 69 verse 21 says they gave me vinegar for my thirst and so jesus continues to fulfill scripture on the cross they bring him this wine vinegar to drink to wet his lips and his mouth because he has two final things to say he's now minutes From death. Matthew just tells us that Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, verse 50. When Jesus has cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. John tells us in chapter 19 that Jesus cries out, It is finished. It's over. It's done. The Greek word used there is the Greek word tetelestai. And archaeologists have discovered tablets, and for you young people, it's not an iPad, it's a piece of stone. (laughs) These old tablets, papyrus paper, like ledgers where people had debts. And when the debt is paid off, written across it is tetelestai, paid in full. Jesus says it is paid in full in full. It is finished. The debt that I owed God because of my sin has been fully paid for by Jesus' blood. The debt that you owe God because of your sin has been fully paid for by the blood of Jesus. He can cry out, it is finished. And then his final saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted Jesus in life. Now he trusts him in death. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And Matthew tells us with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus had said in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And now again on the cross, About three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus gives up the spirit, lays down his life for you and for me because of your sin and my sin. It is finished, paid in full, as we just sang, Jesus paid it all. So Jesus is dead. But then some crazy stuff happens. You think darkness in the middle of the day is crazy? Look at what happens in verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now there's three things that the synoptic gospels tell us happened that all three list. And if you don't know what the synoptic gospels are, the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics because they're pretty sim- similar. They're synonymous. They're a lot alike. The fourth one, the gospel of John, is just very different. All three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record three events that happened. The first one is that the, the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top The bottom. And if you remember, about a month ago, we talked about this that the temple had two rooms. It had the holy place that the priests were allowed into, and then it had the most holy place, and only the high priest was allowed in there, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, coming in with blood. Because as sinful people, our sin cannot be in the most holy place where God's presence is. If you were to walk in there, God would kill you because your sin cannot be in His presence. Now that curtain separating us from God has been torn in two from top to bottom, showing God did it. The door has been flung open because our sin has been paid for in full, washed away. Now we can go into his presence. Also says there was a violent earthquake, not a little one. I've been through some little ones when I lived in California. This is a major one. The rocks split open. The tombs crack open. Major earthquake shaking the ground, and then it gets crazy. The the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. When Jesus is resurrected, they come out of the tombs, walk into town, and appear to a lot of people. Can you imagine that? You're like praying, man, Lord, I just missed Grandma. It's like, Grandma? (laughs) (laughs) What? I thought you were gone. It's kind of But that's what happened you know my question as i read through this is what happened to the people did they ascend with jesus did they just walk back into their tomb and lay down i don't doesn't say but people old testament saints raised to life not quite zombies because they seem to be normal and they go in when jesus is resurrected and they appear to a lot of people crazy stuff crazy crazy stuff And then we start seeing the light come on. Look at verse 54. The centurion and his guards, the people who had been mocking Jesus. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified, oh yeah, and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Surely he was the son of God. Who are the first people after Jesus dies to get it? It's not the religious leaders, not the religious people, the people that should know their Bibles. It's the pagans, the Gentiles, the Romans, those you would not expect, those so far from God. They say, Truly, this was the Son of God. Showing us what's coming as you read into the book of Acts, that the gospel spreads out to the entire world. The Romans get it. Jesus is the Son of God. And this has been a key theme. If you've been through us for the last 18 months through the book of Matthew, you'll know that this is a key theme. That at the baptism, when Jesus comes up out of the water, God says from heaven, This is my beloved Son. In chapter 8, there's a demon-possessed man who says to Jesus, I know who you are, the Son of God. Peter and the disciples finally get it in chapter 16, when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Then the transfiguration in chapter 17, that Jesus is transfigured and again a voice from heaven says, this is my Son, listen to him The key question has been, is Jesus the son of God? And now after he dies, who gets it first? The pagans. They understand Jesus is the son of God. This is the second thing that's recorded in all three synoptics. The curtain is torn. It's wide open to go into the presence of God. The Gentiles are starting to get that Jesus is the Son of God. The gospel is getting ready to spread out into the entire world. And then the third thing, which is included in all three synoptics, and this one is even included in the book of John, is who was there watching, verse 55. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So there were women there. Mark tells us there were many other women there watching from a distance. They had started following Jesus when he was in Galilee. They followed him, served him, cared for him. Now they had followed him on the rest of his journey around Israel. They had followed him now down to Jerusalem to still continue to care for him and serve him. And they are there at the cross. And this is another one of those things that just seems upside down. It seems backwards. It seems not something that you would expect. Because for us, we live in a society now that's very all about equality for men and women, that we want women to be paid the same. Women fought for years to be able to vote the same as men. We try to treat men and women equally, and that's a, that's a good thing. But back in their day, you gotta understand that women were second-class citizens. It was a men's society. Women had few, if any, rights. The historian Josephus, Jewish historian, says this, The woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. That was their belief. Men, women. The rabbis, this was one of their prayers that they would pray. Praise be God that he has not created me a Gentile. Praise be God that he has not created me a woman. Praise be God that he has not created me an ignoramus. So there's us. There's women Gentiles and ignoramuses. All right. That was their attitude not endorsing it, just letting you know that was their attitude. But who does Jesus, all the Gospels, uplift at the end as the faithful ones? The ones that were overlooked, looked down upon by society. The ladies. The twelve fled out of fear. Well, I guess eleven, Judas is dead. But the ladies stayed faithful. Faithful. The 12 disciples, they're fighting over who's the best. The ladies are serving. And it's just a reminder to me that Jesus values those that often society rejects. He touched the lepers. He ate with the tax collectors, the Gentiles, the women, those that society maybe looked down upon, Jesus focused on and loved. And it's further encouragement for me that often the unseen are the best. Those faithful few. We only have a couple names here. Mark tells us there were many more. Those faithful people whose names we will never know that followed Jesus, serving him faithfully. Jesus values our faithfulness. Most of us in here will never become famous. We'll never write a book. We'll never be the missionary that goes and does big things that biographies are written about us. But Jesus notices us and our faithfulness, serving in the nursery, making coffee, greeting people. Whatever it is you do, Jesus notices. He notices the unseen. He notices those that perhaps the rest of us overlook. So what's our takeaway from all this? A few things. Number one, Jesus fulfilled scripture. Even today, go read Psalm 22. Again, you're going to think you're reading Matthew. He fulfilled scripture. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. Number two, Jesus died in place for our sins. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. He took the penalty, the punishment that I deserved. I deserve to die. I deserve to be the one saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? because of separation from God from sin. I deserved that, but he took my punishment. He was the substitute. He died in my place. And then finally, the coolest thing about all this is that the gospel is for everyone. You notice that? Who are the people in the story today that got saved? The Romans. Those far from God. Those so far gone, such awful sinners, don't even know what they're doing by crucifying Jesus, and yet those people, so far from God, said truly, he is the son of God. The criminal on the cross, the guy with a bad past, insurrectionist, probably murderer, done some awful stuff, and you know what? He's dying in a few hours. He does not have any chance to get baptized. He does not have any chance to faithfully attend church. He doesn't have any chance to put any money in the offering plate. He doesn't have any chance to serve. He doesn't have any chance to go be a missionary. He doesn't have the chance to do anything, any works. All he has is, I believe, in Jesus. And that's enough. Jesus says, All your past, all your sins are on me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So the people far from God, people with bad, dark past can be forgiven. The gospel is for them. But then on the other end, you have the Pharisees, right? Those self-righteous people who think that they are God's gift to the world, who follow all the rules and know the Bible and they're diligent and their religiosity, the gospel's for them too. Because next week you'll see Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. He was on the council that voted to execute Jesus, but it says he did not agree with it. He voted no. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, he comes as well to help bury Jesus' body. You know what? There is hope for those of us who are self-righteous who think that sitting in this chair this morning will get us into heaven, who think our good works and our good morals is enough, there is hope, as much hope for us as there is for the criminal on the cross. And everybody in between, the gospel is for us. But you know what? The gospel is not just for people here. It's for your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate, your family, your friend. The gospel is is for them. And unless we go out and tell people, they're not going to hear the good news of the God who loves them, the Savior who died in their place, who was crucified, mocked, spit on, but died for them. We have to tell them. So we're going to finish a little bit differently today. Usually, you know, when we end, we End with everyone standing and we sing a song of praise together. But what we're going to do today is going to be a little bit different. We're just going to have a time of prayer. If you're here and you'd say, you know what, I've been hearing some of this stuff, I don't know that I've ever actually confessed Jesus is the Son of God. I don't know that my past, I think it's too bad, I think I'm too self-righteous, Jesus couldn't forgive me. This is a great chance for you to pray and say, Jesus, you are the Son of God. If you're here and you're a believer... Spend the first minute just thanking Jesus for the cross. If it weren't for that, we'd all be on our way to hell. Spend a minute praising Jesus for the cross and then spend a second minute. Who is it that's on your heart, that's in your mind that you know who needs Jesus? Who do you know that you just have this burning passion God, I need you to save them. Spend your second minute praying for that person, that God will open their eyes to see that truly He was the Son of God. This is your time. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. Thank you for taking the punishment that we deserve, for dying in our place. So that we can be forgiven, so that we can be saved. Lord, I ask that you would help that to shape the rest of our day, the rest of our week, the rest of our life. Lord, that it would change the way we interact with others, that it would change the way we work, change the way we're a student, change the way we think about life and about others. Father, I know all of us in here have people in our lives that we strongly desire to come to you. So, Father, I ask that you would work in their hearts and minds, Lord, to convict them of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, Lord, and to help them to start to understand that your Son, Jesus, truly is your Son, the Messiah, the Savior. It's in his name we pray. Church, if you'll rise to receive your benediction. Now, church, may you rejoice that it is finished. Jesus paid it all. Your salvation is secure because Jesus died on the cross in your place. May we celebrate that. But may we also take the good news of the gospel. The good news of salvation and share it boldly with those with whom we live learn work and play play God bless